the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Coming up this hour, what do you do when somebody close to you ghosts you? And then we're joined by Kevin Halloran, author of a book, When Prayer is a Struggle. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, friends, welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us today. I ran across an article at Lifeway that I immediately read because it is many of us who are pastors and people in general, just regular people. But I want to take this from a pastoral end first. Uh, Lifeway wrote an article entitled this. I'm just going to read you the title, and I think you're going to laugh and be ready to roll. It's called Comfort for the Ghosted Pastor. Aubrey, Wow. That's, I mean, already I like want to cry. I need this comfort. (laughs) Pastors get ghosted all the time, but then they get blamed for getting ghosted. That's right. We're going to have a little bit of a griping Uh, session. Hey, we're going to vent a little, aren't we? Define ghosting for the for the, yeah. uh, for the non-kids out there. Define ghosting and what what <laughs> uh, we joke about it. This is really <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, this idea of ghosting and what we're about to talk about. I'm going to put my cards on the table. It is the thing that is most likely to drive me away from ministry one day. Yeah, like, this uh, is a hard thing. Right, so we're joking right. about it. This is actually Aubrey probably the number one thing I struggle with the absolute most as being a pastor. I mean, it Brian, happens you've across heard me life. like cry yeah. over the over the table because of it. Anyway, go ahead. Sorry, I have no. I, this happens in all areas of life. Yeah, but I would suggest that there's some unique elements to churches and pastors uh, that we probably face this more than yeah. just about anybody. So define it. What is ghosting and yeah. how does it show up for pastors? A ghosting is essentially people who just disappear. And so specifically for pastors, someone's part of your church. You've, I mean, I'm going to say this from a pastoral perspective. You pour into them. Oftentimes you baptize them. You marry them. You dedicate their children. You sit by their side when they lose loved ones. And then all of a sudden they're not a part of your church anymore. And sometimes you don't hear a word often. You don't hear a word about what happened. Or they send you a text or you hear through the grapevine from someone else. Oh, yeah, they left the church. And you are left with your jaw on the table because you don't know what happened. But then I think this is the unique thing to pastors. But then people get mad at you. They ghosted (laughs) you and you and you didn't reach out to them. But half the time you don't even know you got ghosted until it's been months. So it's very, very particularly a painful part of leadership, I would say. Yeah. The opposite, by the way, of ghosting is vampiring where people pop up out of nowhere they haven't been around for a while, and all of a sudden they like rise from the dead, and they're back. <laughs> I've never heard that one. <laughs> yes, <good> vampiring. <laughs> so Matt Hensley wrote this article at Lifeway Research, and Matt Hensley, he wrote this off of a tweet he did that just went crazy. I actually saw this tweet the other day, and then he, it had over 4,000 comments on it at the time of this uh, article. He wrote an, a tweet that just said, to the pastor who made countless visits, numerous counseling sessions, and agreed to do their f- weddings, funerals, and preach to them faithfully week in and week out, only to have them ghost you and go elsewhere, 
Good job. Seriously. <laughs> good job. Oh, and uh, that's what he does. Lord. Let me just read one other portion. He says, ghosting happens to all of us. We preach the gospel each week, pray for folks and pour ourselves into lives week by week. And then one disappears into thin air. They won't return calls. You see the red receipts on the text they ignore and it hurts. When someone dies or moves away, there's closure. But when people ghost you, you're left to assume the worst. I didn't do enough. I could have done more, et cetera. That's a rough place to be. And now he's going to go and give some encouragement. Aubrey, I think that's what I struggle with the most with this conversation. Uh, I dealt with this this week, literally, with somebody oh, who... Oh, I'm so sorry. Uh, yeah, but I mean, like you said, you cried across the table the other day yeah. talking yeah. about this, uh, where it's somebody that I, I have baptized and I have I yeah. love to death and all this. Yeah. And I've sent multiple emails, nothing, just nothing. Yeah. And, and here's where it plays. I don't think people understand this, Aubrey. I don't know if you feel this way, but for me... It's exactly what Matt Hensley says there. I start to question myself. What did I do? Right. Am am I insufficient? How did I cause this to happen? And and if enough of these happen, you're like, dang, I'm just, I'm just a bad pastor. I must be messing up. I must be. And and it really kind of eats away. So there's the relational struggle of Of this. Of course. Of course. But then there's the self esteem struggle with it. That's not just, oh, somebody left my church. Yeah. yeah, but this is somebody, like you said, I poured into, I was close mm-hmm. to. And what it does is, I, I, at least for me, it makes you hesitant to pour into people going forward. I would go, say that is certainly true. And I, I don't think that's necessarily okay, but I do think that's a natural reality is it makes you put your boundaries and your guard up real tight right? Um, because you're like, oh, this is what happens. I did. Ha- have you, have we had Sam Chand on the show before? Samuel Chand. I, Mm, I believe okay. a long time ago, but um, okay. that's a big so, maybe right there. Okay. So he is really, he's really famous for talking about leadership pain. And one of the things that he basically says is this is leadership. So essentially every leader should expect this. This should not be a surprise. There will be people mm-hmm. who either literally sabotage your leadership or are just mad at you and leave. And this really is part of the role. And, um, you know, he, he's famous for saying leadership is bleedership. And sometimes you just, it doesn't mean it doesn't hurt though, right? I mean, I think that's the hard part is (laughs) you want to be like, well, this is just part of the job. At the end of the day, it does feel very painful because it feels personal because you're not in, you're in ministry because you love people. Yeah. Yeah, And so then it it makes you kind of question who you are and how you're doing and all of that stuff. That's really good. You know, I won't dive into these, but uh, Matt Hensley gives two answers, two encouragements to people who are struggling with this. He said, one, it happened to Jesus. I never really thought about that. Oh, right? That's Jesus right. Is not, that's right. As Jesus mm. is being taken to the cross. Where did, what, what, when he's arrested, where are all his disciples, right? Kind Powerful. of Powerful. Yeah. And two, kind of what you just touched on. He said, ministry is hard, but it's worth it. Right. Mm-hmm. Like this is part of it and it's hard. But Aubrey, I do want to kind of expand this beyond just us as pa- you and I are pastors, but I want to expand this beyond pastors and just ask the question, um, not the people being ghosted, but one who might be a ghost er, if mm. you will, whether it's in a church, whether it's in a friendship, yeah. whether it's family. Yeah. What, why, um, what's a better way to go about leaving mm-hmm. a church, leaving a relationship, leaving yeah. a friendship? What's, it might be difficult, but what's the better way and the encouragement we can get? Yeah. You know, I'm going to share an example. I'm not going to give any names, but someone recently left a church and started coming to Renewal, but they love their church. They have been at their church for 10 years. They really weren't leaving because anything bad happened. There were just some changes in their life and they felt like they wanted to be at a different church. But here's what they did. 
they met with all of their pastors and they mm. blessed their pastors. They thanked them for their service. They made sure before they even came to our church that they had had those really hard conversations with their pastors, told them they love them, thanked them and said, I, you know, we want to leave with your blessing and we want you to leave knowing like this isn't anger. This isn't. And sometimes people do leave churches because of anger. I understand that. And I understand there are certain situations. This is not what Brian and I are talking about, where it's toxic. You need to get out. Uh, Brian and I are talking about you just leave a church because you're fed up or you're petty. I shouldn't say you're petty. You feel like there's something (laughs) bothering you. Um, Uh I think the good way to do it is, okay, if you don't want to meet one-on-one, send an email. Just, hey, we've decided to leave. You may have noticed we've not been around. Want you to know we love you. We bless you. We're appreciative of all the things we've done. You could ask for a conversation if you wanted one, if there are things you feel like you need to talk about, but just don't leave without saying anything. Mm. That's my, I don't know. That's my word. And I think that's true of all relationships. If you're done with a friendship because it's too much for you, send an email. I need a break right now in the season, but I love you. I bless you. You know, and those are hard things to do, but I think it's healthy. What do you think, Brian? I think you're onto it right there. I think um, when it comes to like, let's just take the church, like we're talking about you might think it's going to be a super awkward conversation and it may not be easy, but yeah. as a pastor, I can tell you, I've always more appreciated people going, yes. Hey, this might be hard, but, but I don't, I'm going, I'm moving on or whatever than yeah. just being gone. The right. Being gone causes all sorts of just angst and what's wrong with me and all of these things. So I would encourage you just to make that move. And the same with friendships, right? Like right. If, if you need Space again. When there's toxicity, that's a different story. Yeah. Uh, but but uh, you know, having those hard conversations with people, I just think is so needed. Well, wanted to start there. Get a little venting in off of our chest as mm. we start. Uh, well, coming up next, we are joined by Kevin Halloran. He serves with an organization called Unlocking the Bible. Also, the author of a book called When Prayer is a struggle. We're going to talk to him about his book, also his recent Gospel Coalition article. We're looking forward to talking to Kevin Halloran next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, hope for your life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm, and Aubrey and I are thrilled to be joined by Kevin Halloran. He is the author of a new book, called When Prayer is a Struggle, a Practical Guide for Overcoming Obstacles in Prayer. Kevin, how are you doing today, man? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's absolutely our pleasure. Hey, Kevin, before we dive into your book and some other things we want to talk to you about, could you just more fully introduce yourself to our audience so they can get to know you a little bit better? Yes. My name is Kevin Halloran. I serve with a ministry called Unlocking the Bible. That's Pastor Colin Smith's radio ministry live in the Chicagoland area in Hoffman Estates with my wife and young daughter. And it's great to be here. Well, we're so glad to have you. And again, the title of your book is When Prayer is a Struggle. Kevin, give us a big picture. Why did you write this book? Yeah, I wrote When Prayer is a Struggle because I needed a book like When Prayer is a Struggle. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, about 10 years ago now, I, I realized that most of the time I would talk about prayer with either seminary classmates or different people at church. I, I was kind of complaining about it. I would mm. say things like, well, everyone struggles to pray. So, and, and kind of behind that comment, I really thought in my heart, like it, it's not worth pursuing or, you know, it's mm. a struggle to pray. So don't put forth a lot of effort. 
And I, I said that one time at a Bible study, um, and, and the Lord just really, really convicted me from saying wow. that and said, Kevin, you know, talking that way, not, not only does it make prayer not seem like the gift that it is, but like, what does that say about me? Mm-hmm. That's kind of what I, I felt God speak to wow. me. And so at that moment, I, I just started repenting before the Lord. Father, I'm, I'm sorry for being such a complainer. And uh-huh. I'm sorry that I haven't even put forth any effort to try and overcome my struggles, any major wow. effort. And so I, from that moment on, I, I told myself, you know what, uh, for the sake of the Lord, because he's amazing <laughs> and yeah. prayer is really an invitation from him to know him and to uh, cry out to him in, in yeah. a broken world. Uh, we need his help. So I, I told myself, you know what, I'm going to get all the tools and scriptures and have a lot of conversations with other believers about prayer and uh, try and learn to grow and put together something for myself that's going to help me overcome hmm. the struggles that I face so I can be more faithful in mm-hmm. seeking the Lord through prayer. And uh, by God's grace, over a several-year process, I was able to do that. I uh, read a lot of good books, searched the scriptures, uh, talked to many believers, and came up with a list of nine uh, key struggles that we all face in prayer. And each struggle is a different chapter in the book. Okay. Okay. And Kevin, uh, we often know that in order to grow in something, we first have to admit the problem, right? We got to first kind of admit that there's a problem, (laughs) Uh, especially for those of us who've grown up in the church. Why is it so hard to even admit and verbalize that prayer can be a struggle? Yeah, I I think it's hard to admit because it's, it's kind of assumed for believers. Yeah. Um, We, it, 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 you know, you hear so many people say prayer is like breathing, and I, I hmm. believe it, it It should be the same thing. You know, it, it shows our faith in God kind of in a, a day-to-day, moment-by-moment basis. And so we can be a little ashamed, um, you know, when talking about prayer in small group or hearing a sermon. You know, maybe it's truth that we know uh, and have heard many times, but, you know, we, we look at our lives and we realize we don't measure up to what we think we should. Um, and, and so on one hand, it is, it is hard to admit that I think on another hand, it's, it's easy, Mm -hmm. uh, because when we really get down to the nitty gritty, I think we all struggle to pray for different reasons, um, Hmm. living in a broken world. And I think there are some foundational reasons that we struggle and those are a lack of faith and a lack of love for God. Hmm. And that's kind of how I tee up the book in the introduction that, as it says in Hebrews eleven six, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And of course, that, that goes for prayer as well. And James chapter one talks about uh, praying without faith. We shouldn't expect to receive anything from the Lord. We're a double-minded person tossed to and fro by uh, the waves of the sea. And so we need to look to the Lord in faith, mm. knowing that he hears us and he cares about us. Yeah. And for me, that's so encouraging, and, and that draws me to him. Um, and, and really, that, that's what we should do often with our struggles, is not focus on our struggles, because that just puts the focus right back on us. Yeah, And we're never yeah. going to impress ourselves with how great of prayers we are. But we need to look with eyes of faith upon God, our Heavenly Father, who loves us as his children, who cares for us, who can provide anything we need. He has control of all the universe, and he's holding it together, and yet he wants to hear from us. Yeah. And so I, I let those 
great gospel truths about God draw me to God. And mm. uh, that, that second struggle is that we lack love for God. Uh, we need to remember that. Remember, we have a Heavenly Father who loves us. And as I remember that, that increases my love for God, which makes me want to pray more and makes mm. uh, prayer more natural. And so those are a couple of foundational reasons that we struggle to pray. And I think there's a number of other reasons we struggle to pray. There's some conscious ones. Uh, some of the obvious ones are just simply not knowing what to say in prayer. You know, yeah, you know right. we're supposed to pray, but, you know, you bow your head, you close your eyes, and you're like, uh, hey, God, can you, <laughs> yeah. can, you, can you bless me? Can you bless my friend, bless my wife? And th- those are great prayers to pray. I'm not uh, downplaying that. But so often yeah. we say the same thing again and again, and uh, maybe we don't have the richness that we would like in prayer. So yeah, not knowing what to say is a struggle. I think maybe the biggest felt struggle for believers is just having a hard time focusing. Yeah. Hmm. And it's not just for us in a smartphone age, although I think our smartphone age brings unique challenges uh, to our lives. But I think even believers in Jesus's time, even they needed help. And uh, it's interesting that in uh, the New Testament, we see the Apostle Peter share a verse. He says, uh, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Well, why does he say that? Then he goes on for the sake of your prayers. Mm. So we need to be self-controlled, sober-minded. The Apostle Paul says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it. So we need to be watchful. We need to be focused. We can't be self-controlled and sober-minded if our mind is thinking about the score from the game last night or your (laughs) to-do list for today. Yeah, and so yeah, uh, distraction is is a major conscious struggle, uh, and so is busyness. We feel yeah. uh, too busy to pray, and uh, so we don't pray. Uh, the chapter I share on busyness really encourages people to seek to uh, plan prayer. Number one, but number two, incorporate prayer into everything you do, because mm. we can pray short little prayers uh, to God all day long and pray continually as. Uh, scripture encourages us to do. Yeah, that's a good word. Lastly, I'll just share, there are a couple uh, unconscious obstacles to prayer that we can talk about in a little bit. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sometimes our motives are mixed and we don't know uh, if we're praying for what God wants us to. Sometimes guilt gets in the way. Sometimes we just have so many things to pray for. We don't even know where to get started. That's good. Again, Kevin Halloran is the author of a new book called When Prayer is a Struggle, a practical guide for overcoming obstacles in prayer. You can learn more about Kevin at kevinhalloran.net and also connect with him on Twitter at KP underscore Halloran, H-A-L-L-O-R-A-N. As we talk about prayer, I told you off air, Aubrey and I are both pastors and something you'll often hear from people is, I don't pray. I don't even know where to start. Or, so if there's a listener out there uh, who who literally is going, okay, I do know I, I, prayer is an invitation. I need to really become somebody who prays, but I don't even know where to begin. What would you counsel to that person? That's such a, an important question. And my counsel would be to point to the words of Jesus in the Lord's Prayer, where hmm. he taught his disciples to pray. And the first chapter of my book just walks through the Lord's Prayer and says this th- This shares really every reason why we need to pray. And it's also an incredibly practical tool. 
it's amazing that in the Lord's Prayer, I think it's maybe about 54 words long, but it's really a comprehensive look at prayer. I mean, if I saw a a review on Amazon for a product I was considering buying and it was only 54 words long, I'd probably look for something a little more helpful. But Jesus's (laughs) words here, inspired by the Holy Spirit, are a a 54-word masterclass in prayer. Mm -hmm. And I, I love how it starts because it reminds us who we're praying to. Jesus says, our Father in heaven. And we already talked about that. We have to remember the relationship that we have with God. We have to remember him as our father. He's not uh, a a boss who's very strict, who, you know, is demanding things of us. He's not like the force in Star Wars, kind of the the wind blows (laughs) one way or the other, but very impersonal. He's not like Santa Claus, who just gives us whatever we want and doesn't really care about a real relationship. Yeah. He's our loving heavenly father. And so Mm. that's that's why I love using the Lord's prayer as a tool for prayer as well, because it starts off with the most important thing, reminding us of that, the nature of that relationship. And I would encourage uh, listeners, people at your churches to just simply, uh, first of all, memorize the Lord's prayer, uh, because I consider it a, a tool for prayer, kind of like a Swiss army knife. It can help us overcome so many of the obstacles that we face if we just use it faithfully and use right. it in some of the different ways that we're able to pray. That's great. Um, Kevin, again, the title of your book is When Prayer is a Struggle. It's what we're talking about uh, with you today. You know, I'm thinking about the fact that uh, we live in a very busy society right now, of course, because of COVID, some things have slowed down, but some things are picking back up again. And I wonder, how do we incorporate prayer just into the natural rhythms of our busy lives? That's such an important question. As I mentioned earlier, you know, scripture commands us to pray continually. And I hear or remember scripture you know, from the Old Testament, Enoch walked with God. And that's so encouraging, just just hearing about someone walking with God. And of course, you can't walk with God if, if you're not talking to him yeah. in prayer. And so I think uh, it's important for all of us to kind of analyze our busyness. Is it is it a good level of busyness? Are we uh, serving God and serving others? And um, do, do we have a good rhythm in life or are we doing too much and does prayer and seeking God and some of the other spiritual disciplines, like uh, being a part of a church, that gets pushed to the side? Mm-hmm. Uh, and if we truly are too busy to pray, then we are simply too busy because mm-hmm. that is a, an essential part of uh, following Christ and living in response to the gospel, what God has done. So in the chapter that I wrote on busyness, I, I promise no silver bullets. Um, but I think there are some really helpful ways to think about how do we live a, a praying life even when we're busy, because it's possible. If you look at the life of Jesus, he was incredibly busy, and yet he prayed. And mm. I, I love his example in scripture. Um, there's there's a, a passage, I believe it's in Mark 6, where Jesus, after performing a miracle, I, I think it was the feeding of the 5,000, it, he, he's basically like shooing people away, like disciples, get on this boat. Okay, go over here, you know, crowd, you can go home now. Why? So he could go up on the mountain and pray to his heavenly father. And I think we need to do that as well 
in our lives, we need to plan and be intentional about prayer. And maybe if you're incredibly busy, you look at your calendar and you're like, I have, I have no time. Maybe you need to block out some time and say, I have an appointment that I have to keep. I cannot move it. And maybe it's as simple as, okay, I have, you know, back to back to back meetings this afternoon, but I'm going to schedule one. So it's 50 minutes long instead of an hour. And I'm going to spend that 10 minutes just reading a Psalm and praying to the Lord or praying the Lord's prayer. Uh, and I know as I've done that in my life, uh, it's a, it's a simple way to incorporate prayer, but it, it's really helped me refocus on the Lord and on my calling in life and, and the work that I'm supposed to do to serve others. And it's kind of a breath of fresh air. Yeah. And Kevin, this is so helpful. As we start to close this out, let me just ask you one more question. Uh, you talked about this kind of being the result of a personal journey. And I wonder if it would be helpful for people to hear, how has your life changed over the last couple of years as you've become not only to come to understand prayer more, but just be more devoted to it and kind of be growing as a prayer? What is that? What are the uh, changes that have happened in you? The first thing I'll say is I'm, I'm just so thankful for to God because he has helped me incredibly. One of the things I found in this journey is we can often overcomplicate prayer and that if we learn a few prayer tools well, it can help us overcome so many different obstacles. The Lord's Prayer, which I mentioned earlier, or uh, different ways to pray scripture that I include in the book as well. But I'd say this whole journey has just given me a greater awe of who God is and his mm. grace in my life and his grace in the invitation to us to pray to him. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because ultimately it is, you know, it's all about him. Mm. Um, and, and if you look at the Lord's prayer, the first half is about him. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. And the second half is, is more focused on us, what we can pray to the Lord, but he cares about us. He wants to yeah. give us this day, our daily bread. He wants to forgive us our debts he wants to that we not be led into temptation. He wants to deliver us from evil. And so that just makes me raise my hands in worship because God cares about us. Mm. And we can know him. And ultimately, that's what prayer is all about. And I think, uh, you know, personally talking about prayer, it can so easily become about, you know, techniques and tips and and that's very important. That's why I wrote this book and practical is in the subtitle. Um, but <laughs> the, the purpose of everything is to know God. Yeah. And as it says in John seventeen three that uh, Jesus is praying to God, the father, and he says, this is eternal life that they may know you and Jesus Christ whom they have sent. Mm -hmm. So prayer and communion with God is a little, a uh, little taste of heaven, what we're going to be enjoying for all of eternity. Because as the Bible ends, how does it end? It says, behold, the dwelling place of man was, is with God. He will be their God and we will be his people. Mm -hmm. And we're just uh, remembering that more and more that we are God's children. We can come to him. And and that, that's the, the number one takeaway for me. And uh, that wasn't my, <laughs> that wasn't my plan. It was just God and his goodness. And so I hope people who read this book will have the same exact response. 
That's a good word, Kevin. Again, Kevin Halloran uh, serves at a ministry called Unlocking the Bible, and he's the author of the new book, When Prayer is a Struggle, a Practical Guide for Overcoming Obstacles in Prayer. You can also go to the Gospel Coalition and read Kevin's new article entitled How the Lord's Prayer Can Help You Overcome Your Prayer Struggles. Kevin, thanks so much, man. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Brian and Aubrey. Yep, you're listening to The Common Good on AIM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. And we have a very heavy topic to discuss Mm -hmm. for the next few minutes. And that is um, uh, returning to the case of Larry Nasser, the um, gymnast doctor who abused, I mean, hundreds Hundreds. of girls. Because he was also at a college. Yeah, That's right. He was also at a college. Um, and he is it, been sentenced to 175 years in prison. But yesterday, some of the elite gymnasts, Simone Biles, Michaela Maroney, Maggie Nichols, Ali Raisman, testified before Congress about FBI's failures in handling these uh, this abuse case. Because all of these girls and their moms went to the FBI multiple times and they did nothing or they didn't handle it well. Um, and Brian, before we dive into the conversation, there was just some incredible, I mean, this I, leader listeners, I, I want to warn you, this is very emotional, um, but it is some powerful audio from gymnast Michaela Maroney talking about how they failed and what that actually led to. So let's go ahead and listen to that. After telling my entire story of abuse to the FBI in the summer of 2015, Not only did the FBI not report my abuse, but when they eventually documented my report, 17 months later, they made entirely false claims about what I said. They chose to lie about what I said and protect a serial child molester rather than protect not only me, but countless others. As uncomfortable and as hard as it was to tell my story, I was gonna make a difference and hopefully protecting others from the same abuse. I answered all of their questions honestly and clearly, and I disclosed all of my molestations I had endured by NASAR to them in extreme detail. USA Gymnastics, in in concert with the FBI and the Olympic Committee, were working together to conceal that Larry NASAR was a predator. Let's be honest. By not taking immediate action from my report, they allowed a child molester to go free for more than a year. And this inaction directly allowed Nassar's abuse to continue. Okay, I mean, I don't know about you, but I cannot listen to her talk without getting very emotional. She says all we needed was one adult to do the right thing, and that would have saved hundreds of girls from being assaulted. Uh, Brian, when you hear that, I mean, what's your sort of initial reaction? Yeah, I, so my guess is it strikes you and I very differently. Probably, uh, both, yeah. Both of them tragically, but you have some history, but also just yep. the mere fact that you're a woman. Yeah. Um, I think it just lands differently. To me, I'm always, when I hear stuff like this, as a guy who's never experienced anything like this, thankfully, uh, it always lands as, first of all, surprise to me. Like, why mm. wouldn't they have done anything? Like, how do you, like, I start to feel really naive. Does mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, why would the FBI have not done anything? And then I try to ask the question, like, you know, if I were in that situation, you know, sometimes, again, as a man, I think that my naiveness goes to, like, nobody would do that. Like, <laughs> surely, 
surely there's more to this story or surely because you don't want to believe that these kind of things happen to young girls. Right. And so you start to have this innocence to you that goes, there's got to be more to this story. Like maybe there was a big cover up here, but maybe there were just FBI agents who didn't do their due diligence. And that's equally as bad because the girls, it still allowed this guy to still be a predator. But I think it then again, and I'd first love to get your response, but I also, it brings to mind to me in churches, in institutions, in schools, in other places, where is it where we go, that couldn't happen and not believe or at least uh, take seriously the claims of somebody going, no, no, this abuse has happened to me, but instead kind of go, there's got to be more. You know what I mean? Like, Like that we have to, this kind of thing should wake up us up in churches and schools and other places just to go, okay, we have to be super, super diligent. And so, and my heart breaks. I mean, you know, I started by saying that I've never had any experience like that. You still can't listen to Michaela Maroney's testimony or Simone right. Biles or others and just well, be and you have two daughters, so yeah. Oh my gosh, to listen to them and talk about the length. Oh, it was. I had to turn it off. I mean, I was just like, I can't. This is just heartbreaking. So it begins with heartbreak, and then you just kind of go, "How do we get to that point?" Mm. You know, I you know, I think you're right. This landed differently because for me, this is like. Of course, they didn't believe the girls are the women. Of course, yeah. they didn't do anything. Like this is this is the oldest story in the book. I mean, this is this is Adam saying to God, "The woman made me do it." Like this is literally the oldest story in the book. And the reality is, this is women's story, time and time and time again for centuries across the globe. You talk about how you have been abused. And no one believes you or they don't Mm. take you seriously enough to do anything about it because they are interested in protecting power. And I'm telling you, it is the work of the enemy. Like it is so evil. And so I'm on the other hand, I'm not surprised. I'm like, oh, yeah, of course, the FBI didn't do what they were supposed to do. That said, I don't feel a resignation. I feel so much anger. Like, absolutely. Mm. Should the FBI be should have they have done their job? Yes, they literally caused hundreds. I mean, it was Larry Nasser's fault, but the reality is they caused hundreds of women to continue girls to continue to go through this. And I, I think you're right, Brian. The question does have to be, okay. So in the church, we hear stories of women, girls being victimized all the time. I think the tendency across again, history has been for pastors not to believe these girls, to tell them to keep it quiet, to keep it confidential the tide seems to be changing and I hope That's it right. continues to change where we realize our job as Christians is always to be on the side of the victim. That's it right. is never to defend power. It is never to not believe. Even if you err, err on believing, right? Like even if in the end you're like, oh, that wasn't actually the right story. Like err on believing women, err on believing girls. And and I hate to even say it like that, but choose to believe girls, honor them, honor their stories. And... um. Because the reality is, I mean, I don't know the percentage, Brian, but you and I know usually the stories are true. Like girls and right. women are out there making these stories up. This, is, I mean, one in four victims of uh, assault. Or, sorry, let me say that again. Uh, between the ages of zero and 18, one in four women or girls are victims of assault before mm. she turns 18. And so I, I just think we can't be naive about this stuff anymore. And as Christians, we have to, oh, we have to do better. We have to and do it, better like, by girls and women. This is going to sound like a, maybe a weird point, but w- another thing that struck me is 
and this is kind of your point about the propensity to of of or the widespreadness of stuff like this that a lot of us just aren't aware of is these were some of the most famous girls in our country. Right. Like this isn't like a dark corner. Right, oh, they were Brian. The, this we're talking about Simone Biles. I mean, right, we're talking Brian. about there aren't many more famous uh you know, women or young girl athletes in our country than Olympic gymnasts. And and to hear them tell the story makes you go, wow, like that's I don't know. It doesn't make it any harder than, you know, a random girl story. But it does kind of raise something in your mind. Go, man, we're talking about Simone Biles here. We're talking about Michaela Maroney. She's got a major. I see her on my TV all the time. That that just even add yeah. something to the story. Yeah. There's uh, yeah, that's true. There's some truth to that that if it happens to them, imagine who else it's happening to. Well, we hope that um I know that's a heavy topic, but hope you continue to pray for those those young women and those girls who are in the middle of this case and um for other victims that you know as well. Coming up next, is it okay to use this new term about evangelicals? We'll talk about that when we return. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. And as always, we're so grateful that you're with us here today. There's a new term called political evangelicals. I want to unpack that in a minute. Before we unpack that term, just define evangelicals for me. Can you do that? Oh, that's a good one. You know, it it is. uh, It's a term. I need to get my inner Ed Stetzer on. I know, right? Remember your Wheaton grad school training? Yeah, it's a term uh, within the last couple of generations that puts a focus on the centrality of the Bible and the mission of evangelism, hence the word evangelical, of evangelism, and tries to break down the barriers of denominations, right? So you could be a Baptist or you could be, you know, a Pentecostal. uh, Pentecostal and still be an evangelical. It, it yeah. looks to break down some of the traditional denominational barriers and say, okay, but we both agree on uh, the lordship of Jesus Christ, the sufficiency of scripture, the mission of evangelism and to the world, and we're going to be united in that way. So that's kind of, think Billy Graham. Billy Graham is one of the first kind of there movers of evangelicalism. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's been a powerful movement uh, that that has been largely positive. I would say what we're going to talk about here is it's kind of been a bit co-opted um, by political talk. Yeah. Uh, but at its core, I would say evangelicalism. You and I are both evangelical pastors. I think yes. we went to uh, what we would evangelical call evangelical college. The, yes. <laughs> the evangelical college, right? Like uh, the evangelical we, Harvard of the Midwest. There you go. There you go. <laughs> I think we believe in the core tenets of evangelicalism, mm-hmm. but have concern about kind of the offshoots of it right now. Yeah, that's good. That's a great way to to put it, Brian. Well, tomorrow on the show, we have Kate Shellnut. She's a reporter at Christianity Today. Um, and she wrote an article at Christianity Today called Political Evangelicals, More Trump Supporters Adopt the Label. And this is what I think is so interesting, Brian, is that um, significant amount of people did not consider themselves evangelicals when president Trump, former president Trump was elected. Okay. But right. nearly one in six began identifying as evangelicals by 2020. Mm-hmm. And then just 1% of white Americans who did not favor Trump made the same switch. So this 
large group of people who did not consider themselves evangelicals before Trump's presidency during his presidency started to define themselves as evangelicals. And I don't think it's because they had a conversion to Christ. Mm. Um, Ed Stetzer, who's quoted in this article, says there are significant implications to the fact that significant numbers of white Trump supporters now identify as evangelical or born again. We don't know why. And correlation does not always mean causation, but there is more to study here. So, okay, Ed Stetzer just admitted they don't know why. That's but right. do you have any thoughts on why? I mean, if Ed Stetzer doesn't know why, <laughs> Uh, I think that the rise in the affiliation under certain groups, I think, shows us, again, that the term evangelical in our culture has become primarily a political term. Yeah. It is a – how many articles have we read? How many uh, studies have we seen that says – uh, that it is the white evangelical who put President Trump or this person or this person – they're the engine – that gets that person into office, right? Like they're they're this voting block. And so I think people are going, I believe in, I want to be part of that voting block more than the people adding on here are saying, I want to be part of that uh, faith movement per se. I think it's just mm. a next step here of, of our realization that the term evangelical, and we see this happening in churches in the church world right now. People are trying to rem, um, distance themselves from the term evangelical yes. for this reason uh, because we want to think of it in theological terms and in missional terms. Yeah. Uh, but, but our culture, you watch the news, you listen to people talk, go, okay, I want to get President Trump or this person into office. Therefore, I'm going to be one of those evangelicals. Like, again, I want to look at the, 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 the statistics here and be like, a revival's taking a place, but I don't think that's what's right. Unfortunately, happening. I don't think it is either. My, it's interesting you say that. My husband, Kevin, actually thinks, we need to stop using the term altogether and come up with mm. a totally new term because it is too tied into politics, specifically a certain type of politic at this point. And he is sort of like, I don't know if I can keep considering myself an evangelical, not because he's not an evangelical, but he because still believes of how the, the tenets. Yes. Right. But because the term culturally is just totally losing its, um, its meaning, right? That's the right. meaning is shifting so much that perhaps it's time for us to look at a different term. Interestingly, Mark Caleb Smith, he's the director of the Center for Political Studies at Cedarville. He says this in the article. My concern is that this shift might make it more difficult to present ourselves as ambassadors for Christ. Will those who disagree with our politics dismiss us theologically out of hand? If so, this presents real problems for we who are. The Great Commission still beckons us, but our culture is so politicized and polarized that spreading the gospel under what is seen as a political banner becomes much harder. Let me say something about that, uh, Brian. We've had a couple people in our church, not a huge number, but I would say like two couples leave our church because they felt like um, politically they disagreed with with yeah. uh, some things that Kevin or I talked about, which we were not talking about from the pulpit, but maybe on social media. And that made them dismiss our theology, which is yes, so right. fascinating to me. I think that's a real, real uh, tension for people right now. I think in uh... – uh, we saw this in the election cycle. Uh, our politics, while important for many people, have replaced religion. They've kind of become the, a religion. Uh, and so uh, it's not surprising. It's sad to hear you say that, but it's not surprising to me yeah. because I think we're, uh, we're, we've elevated 
um, political affiliation, candidate and, and everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's right up there with our, you know, Hey, I believe the, the apostles creed and I'm this, you know what I mean? Right. Like I've this, let me just read this paragraph from this article okay. again. Cause it's so well written. Uh, Kate says, while many evangelicals and evangelical institutions see their movement in theological terms to the point that Christian pollsters have tried to break out evangelicals by belief rather than self-identity, the label has taken on political dimension over decades of polling, media coverage, and the partisan involvement of evangelicals themselves. It's exactly what we've been trying to say. For you and I, we we want to define evangelicalism completely in theological terms and mm-hmm. say, you could be a Democrat evangelical. You could be a right. Republican evangelical. Right. You could right. be a white evangelical. You could be a black evangelical yes. and so on and so forth. But increasingly what pollsters are seeing is that's not how our culture sees it. That's not how yeah. our society sees it. And that's seeping into the church. I think even in our churches, if you asked people to define evangelical, I would bet that increasingly there's going to be political language in it because that's all we hear. That's yeah. all we hear from people. That's all that we read. Whereas we're going, no, I want this to be a theological term, but yeah. I would say that it's losing its uh, its basis as a theological term. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. And then I think a question for us just to consider as time goes on is, you know, like my husband, Kevin, knowing that the term is so tied with politics, like the political evangelical is sort of the new term. Do you start saying, I'm an evangelical, but here's what I mean, blah, 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 blah. Or do you come up with a totally different term? I think that'll be interesting to see in the years to come. Just to close that, I think for people like Kevin, who are like, I don't want to be called an evangelical, if he gets to that point, the mm-hmm. burden on that, on him or any of us doing that will now become I have to explain why. Otherwise, yeah. you're going to hear people. Kevin's going to hear people saying, oh, are you just a Democrat now? hundred percent. It's right. going to work against him. He needs to like kind of thoughtfully yep. work that out, which is going to yep. take some time, but I think is important work. Yeah, it's. I think it's going to be so fascinating to see in the years to come, like how the term changes and if we end up like putting ourselves under an umbrella of something else. So we'll see. Well, thanks, everybody, for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian Fromm, I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.